Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast, where we explore how to accelerate the future. Imagine a world of abundance, longer lives, clean energy, transparent markets, robots and AI doing the toiling labor. Why don't we have those things yet? Join us as we explore the biggest problem that holds back frontier tech, overregulation. Now we have real solutions, startup cities, network states, and on-chain finance. Please find ways to support us in the show notes. Now enjoy this episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today is December the 5th in 2023, and I have two guests today. Max Borders has been on the show before, author of many books and major thinker. Uh, some of his books include The, the Decentralist, The Social Singularity, and After Collapse. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And Michel Bowens is here for the first time. He's also a thinker and writer, the founder of the P2P Foundation, and author of the book, The Political Economy of Peer Production. Michel, welcome to the show. Nice to meet you. I, I mean, I know Max, uh, you know, from having uh, some uh, fiery exchanges. <laughs> oh, okay. I want to hear more about no, those never, later. Never hostile, <laughs> actually, but, you know, we have some different philosophies, so that should be fun. Mm -hmm. um, but also commonalities, and, like I'm reading both of you yeah. and I always um, struck by, right, this is similar and there are the other things that are different. When you take two radicals, uh, eventually they merge <laughs> at some point. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but great, that's what I wanted to have you on because I've been following both of your work closely, um, big ideas, big changes in the governance of world civilizations. Uh, and I know you also track or are overlapping with areas of my work, right? So Max has been visiting me in Prospera for a conference and Michelle, you've been at Zuzalu and we just missed each other there, by the way, right? So, but I heard about the track that you've been working on with coordinations. I have Primavera de Filippi on the show as well. So um, very excited to have this discussion today, hear more about your work and have some fun. Um, right. First, Michelle, I would like to start with you. Um, can you give listeners a bit of an introduction to your work and also how your ideas evolved and what you're thinking most right now? So feel free to make this a bit of a longer introduction. All right. So, well, this is probably not so interesting, but, you know, I'm from Belgium. I have four children. I have, I'm 65 and I live in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand. Um just like objective <laughs> information, I guess. Um, then uh, in 2005, I created the Peer-to-Peer -peer Foundation, uh, which was meant as an observatory of all things peer-to-peer -peer and the commons. So with peer-to-peer, -peer, I mean this capacity that we now have for translocal organizing using digital means. So in other words, we can scale um, small group dynamics at a global scale. And that's, that's just new. That, that didn't uh, exist before. Um, and the commons is that the best way to do this is actually to create shared knowledge. Uh, and so that's historically called commons. And so I, I'm particularly interested in the connection between peering, as it were, and, and reestablishing the commons as a human institution uh, because it's it's always been a, a, a very important institution that has historically counterbalanced the markets and the states so 5000 years ago we moved to 
from kinship-based uh, social organization to markets and states. So, so this my interest for the commons is because it's it's a very important countervailing institution. So, markets and states are really extractive institutions. They are they exist to grow, to conquer, to make one particular nation stronger, and they're in competition with others. And the commons is the protective institution. It's what local people historically used to do, uh, you know, to reserve for like for the long term access to vital resources. And capitalism, or whatever you want to call it, uh, I call it capitalism, um, is really the only system in the history that has done everything it could to suppress the commons. Uh, except now, paradoxically, uh, you know, the, the digital sphere is very influenced by, by capital ownership. And so paradoxically, we now have a, a form of capitalism that is actually kind of coexisting and using the commons again. But that's just an aside to complicate things. So I have a concern to um, restore the commons in order to get a more balanced view. And so my work, so now I come back to the description of my work, has been, first of all, to observe the new um, practices that are enabled by peer-to-peer and see how they impact like really every domain. So I have a wiki with 25,000 articles that has accumulated 1 billion views. So it's it sounds like it's useful. And then I try to make a synthesis, you know, like where's this going? And in order to do that, I also had two periods in my life where I spent two or three years really focusing on civilizational history. Like um, in the, the first time 20 years ago, I was, I was looking at transitions and came up with the idea of seed forms so that you know the the, the revolutions that we are used to to see as like part of human history like the russian revolution the french revolution if they occur they really occur at the end of a long process and the process itself of transformation is seed forms is people you know leaving the old system because it no longer works and experimenting with the new and through that experimentation inventing a new logic um so that's kind of my interest for seed forms. And then uh, with COVID, I, I undertook a new phase and I've been basically been reading, you know, Spengler, Toynbee, Sorkin. I don't know if you're familiar with those names, but yeah, these yeah. are all people who looked at the whole of human history um, in order to make sense of it. And so my, my particular spiel, if you like, is to put the commons in that global history uh, and then, okay, I can explain more later, but this is like the, the, what motivates me. Yeah, I would definitely like to hear more bit about this transition that you had during COVID. Um, but before you do that, I'd like to also know a bit more precisely what is the comments and how we track them, because uh, I have a background okay. in economics, so I'm very familiar with the terms, also with like the technical definition and what public goods are. But I always had a bit of an issue with or what's not mentally not solved for me is where where are the boundaries right so take language right. language is a comments right well okay well, yeah, yeah this is a very important thing you say because i i, I can nibble on that so so mm -hmm. there is a like a very broad definition which i think is not very useful and then there's a very precise definition that comes from eleanor ostrom mm -hmm. and the broad definition is what you just say it's like everything that's common 
but the Ostrom definition is everything that's common and is and that is governed by a community. So, and this makes it something very specific, which is it's a shared resource maintained or protected or created by a community or a group of stakeholders. That's the, that's the second thing. And the third thing, and managed following its own rules. And so that makes the commons very specific because you have to look at a specific resource. Then, you know, it, people are involved. So it's not the air unless the air is managed somehow. But the air or, you know, so th that makes it the fact that the human community is involved in managing, protecting, creating it. And then the third one is it's different from the state and the market because the rules are decided upon by that community itself. So this is for me a much more specific. Uh, so when you say public goods, for example, which is the language which is used uh, in the Ethereum community, you know, they go back to Sam Wilson and then he describes public goods as goods that are non-rival and non-excludable, right? This is a kind of a good. And then he assumes that it's the public. So like the nondescript and then often actually the government. But the commoners, that's not what they're doing. They're saying, actually, it's a governance model and we can apply it to other things as well. Like we can decide that cars are a commons simply by mutualizing the use of cars in a group of people, right? So, so this detaches it from the kind of objective idea that there's a certain kind of goods that are commons. No, no, the commons in the more specific sense is a human decision to govern a resource in a non-state and non-market way. And, but that doesn't mean that the commons cannot be surrounded and interacting with markets. So can I give you an example just to make it very clear? So historically, the, the, the fishermen of Gam Senegambia, Senegal, you know, that, that, that part of Africa, they made deals with each other where, you know, these families could go on Monday, these families could, could go on Tuesday, there's only so much you can fish and, and not on holidays and all of that, right? So they make common rules for this resource. So that makes it a commons. But once they fish it, they sell it on the market, right? So, so to have a commons doesn't mean that there's no market attached to it, next to it, on top of it. It's, it's, a, it's simply a specific contextual thing that can coexist with states and markets. Yeah, that definitely solves it for me. Um, and I would also like you to talk a bit about your intellectual development during COVID that you said that was a uh, point where you right. um, developed new well, ideas. That's a bit of a painful, a painful <laughs> discussion, actually, because uh, so, you know, so I, when I created the, the P2P Foundation, um, you know, it took a while to get going, but it, it, it really grew in, into something you know, we had uh, maybe 20 or 30 people working very closely together. We used kind of like a sociocratic, um, you know, method. And, you know, and I was traveling five to seven months a year. Like I, I, I gave 100 lectures per year since 2013, which I don't recommend because it's not good for your health. But just to give you an indication. And then in 2018, I was canceled. Um, and... 
you know, I don't want to play the victim, but that was a very profound traumatic experience for me because, you know, you try to be a good person. You basically give your life for a cause. You know, you, you don't get rich on the country. You, you actually you know lose money as an activist most of the time. And then, you know, with this identity politics, suddenly, okay, I was the evil white man, you know, old white man. So I have minus three on the progressive stack. Um, and I was called a Nazi. And, and, you know, just because I didn't agree with this kind of intersectional way of looking at the world, right? So that kind of created a, like, a, a bit of a trauma. Uh, and also, but in the end, it was very good for me because, you know, I had been a lefty all my life. And then suddenly I was seeing, well, that's not what I signed up for. And where are all the people defending me? And, and there were very few. Like, you know, people were, people were either intimidated um, or, you know, just like, we don't want to get involved. So I lost all my funding. I got on blacklists here and there. And and then came COVID, which didn't help, right? In terms of like getting your back on track. Uh, but so intellectually, my I have a very strange combination of things. So I used to be a Marxist when I was young. Um, but then I thought this is not working. So, and if we can't make a revolution on the outside and we want to be happy, the only uh, solution is to make a revolution on the inside because this is the world as it exists. So then I got interested in um, psychotherapy. I became a Reichian. I don't know if you're familiar with Willem Reich, the sexual revolution. I, you know, I lived in three different communes. Um, and then I got interested in spirituality. So I was with Osho and Daphri John. And, you know, I, all, all, I made many mistakes <laughs> in my life. Um, uh, and I got very interested in integral theory. So if you're familiar with Ken Wilber, uh, yeah. Right. And I, I still find him very interesting. Um, but, you know, at the time in my 30s, I was like almost infatuated with, with these ideas. Um, and then I did a three year pause, which I read Western philosophy. Um, and that was really interesting to me because, I, you know, I was also like reactive to Western society. Um, and then I said, OK, well, you know, as every civilization, you know, is based on domination and all kinds of things, but it's also the only civilization which abolished slavery, the only one. Like, there's no other civilization that has abolished slavery. So, you know, I got like a more balanced view on, on, on civilization and particularly Western civilization. Uh, and then I said I was in my 30s, okay, now I have enough, I've done enough. You know, I've got this whole toolbox of psychological techniques. So now I have to do something. And so I went into startups. I had two startups in the 90s. I made a movie, Technocalypse, which is a three-hour documentary about transhumanism. And you have to think about this is the mid-90s. This is not today, right? This was quite anticipatory. Um, and my last job was working as a strategist for um, a, a big telco. And that brings me to 2000, 2004. But so I want to say I have a very varied, like, you know, uh, intellectual sourcing, right? Because it's it has Marxism, it has integral theory. I studied Eastern religions. 
I studied Western philosophy, um, and that makes me hard to put <laughs> in a particular <laughs> box. Um, well, I think that's I the guess... hallmark of um, intellectual honesty to be able to pick from different strains of thoughts yeah. and sort of thinking independently, even when the whole um, world or this particular strain of thoughts that you thinks you, you know that wants to um, wants you to go in a certain direction, you can resist that. So, yeah. um, definitely very appreciative and very just your work is very kaleidoscopic. So I really enjoy also your yeah, substack. Yeah. So you what I forgot <laughs> to say, Nicholas, is that by you know the, the good side of being expelled from a particular tribe is that I was that I was compelled to look at what the other tribes were saying. So actually, you know, started following you know, right-wing uh, podcast channels and YouTube channels. And I was also very anti-libertarian. And I'm not exactly libertarian today, but I'm, I have a much better understanding of how people think because I actually listen to them. And, you know, when you're in a tribe, you, you don't listen. You have, like, you don't read Hayek. You read a Marxist critique of Hayek, right? You 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 don't go to all the sources. You're, you're reading everything that's already filtered from a particular point of view. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, in, in some ways, it's interesting to be like out there. You know, ah, where am I? Because then you you have this moment in your life where you actually like are motivated to see. Well, okay, if that doesn't work, maybe I should be looking somewhere else, right? Yeah, I 100% agree and also see many similarities in um, how my intellectual development, but that's not the topic of today's conversation, but I've also been in many different tribes and had many of these sort of transformations where you were like, oh, you were thinking these thinkers are like bad and then you read them and actually listened and there's actually really profound things and then you learn and then you evolve. Um, but Max, let's go to you because you're also a very prolific and very kaleidoscopic thinker. Do you also want to give listeners an, a bit of an intellectual biography and talk a bit about some of the ideas that you're thinking about most right now? Well, first I want to say that, um, that it was, it was such a shame to see what happened to Michelle. because I, I was on the sidelines a bit and I was, I was very happy to defend him because I was never in, in the tribe, um, if you like, using the the Wilberian language, the, the the mean greens came after him in in force, and that must have been unfortunate for him, having gone through that that Wilberian stage set of stage theory ideas. Um, that kaleidoscopic thinking that Michelle represents makes him something of an antagonistic mentor to me. So while we mix it up online. It's always with the deepest respect. Like the man is is brilliant, and I learn from him even in the antagonism. So we share ideas. We um, and that can be that can be antagonistic, but it can also be complementary. So being a being as you guys put it, a kaleidoscopic thinker is really a dispositional aspect too. It is about an openness, a willing to integrate and synthesize, a willing to discard ideas that are no longer useful and embrace other ideas that are. And I think that's why in this conversation we'll find a lot of overlaps. So in terms of my intellectual trajectory, um, 16 year old, 16 years old, my, my creative writing teacher did something that changed my life forever. 
and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a cliche story for for a young American in this in this time period, but handed me a copy of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, which for the adolescent testosterone addled mind is 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 a kind of intellectual crack. But I also think of it as is somewhat adolescent too, and of course at, at this stage. But it set me down the road to have a much more libertarian sensibility. And I've always appreciated the the power, the efficacy and and indeed the experimental aspect of entrepreneurial markets. And so that really that led me later in life to um, ways in which I could upgrade my liberalism, I guess you could say, because broadly speaking, I still consider myself a liberal. And the reason I do is because liberalism um, is asymmetrical nearly with respect to all other doctrines, if you want to call it a doctrine. It's, uh, to me, it's, it's at least at this stage in my intellectual development, almost like a meta doctrine. And I hate the word meta. That's been so abused. But here we are. Um, liberalism allows for this real, real world experimentation. So it's not just the sort of the lofty intellectual um, onanism that you sometimes get out of any tribe. It is also a an invitation to practice, and that's kind of that's what I find very appealing in entrepreneurial markets. If you apply the lens of the entrepreneur, whether it be to um, commons management in the in, you know new ways of managing the commons as um, you know a governance model which I absolutely appreciate. Um, Ostrom and I are, Lynn Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom, her husband, Vincent Ostrom, and I share very deep, coarse sympathies to, to this form of liberalism. And yet she is, in many respects, a kind of patron saint of the idea of evolved commons. But it is in that evolution, evolutionary idea, and I'm I'm very much influenced by the complexity theorists, people like Stuart Kaufman, uh, people like, um, um, uh, in, in, and you know, even popular works like that of James Gleick in Chaos, uh, his book Chaos, which is about you know chaos theory, and the 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 interaction between the sort of this notion of ordered chaos and the kind of experimentation that is able to happen at the if you get if you sort of get the le- the protocol level dialed in, and I believe that that protocol level is some form of liberalism. Now, what exactly that needs to be, um, I, I cannot say, because uh, you can have arguments, between, just as you can have arguments between Ethereum developers and Bitcoin developers and Cardano developers, you can also have arguments uh, be- between uh, you know, people who want to espouse different forms of liberalism. And I, what I say is, all of these intellectual arguments about the one true way are silly, and we need to uh, um, uh, apply um, our subversive innovation, okay, which is a term that I I bring to the table. I, I, I at least I think I have as a mode or manner of experimentation and market entrepreneurship. Fundament in some fundamental sense, not fundamentalist sense, but in some fundamental sense enables that because at some level 
someone who is going to implement, say, a, a, a localized commons management system or a digitized wider effort in commons management, these kinds of uh, experimentations are still, in some fundamental sense, entre entrepreneurial. They are tests, and that and they will either be adopted or not. Now, you know, Michelle and I might have merely, ver merely verbal disagreements about what it means to be a market, what capitalism actually is. Um, I think there are so many – the term capitalism is so fraught, not only because if I understand it, it was coined by Marx or Marxists, but also because it carries with it the baggage of – of uh, cronyism, state capitalism. There are just so many subtypes, and he and I would probably agree to a very high degree about the pro those problematic types. The unholy alliance between business and government, for example, that that is – sorry to use the F word on, on your show, Nicholas, but fascism. So I am very sympathetic to some of those kinds of critiques that, that uh, Michelle brings – and my anti-authoritarian bent is a thread that I can have continued and unwavering since the time of Ayn Rand as a teenager. Um, I'm still an anti-authoritarian in the sense that I am fundamentally about ways that we can experiment to serve each other better as human beings. If that takes a more narrowly defined market process, let's try it. If that takes a uh, narrowly defined commons management pro process. Let's try it, but let's not shove some one true way down each other's throats. And that's the anti-authoritarianism in me. And I suspect to some degree, it is also for Michelle. Thanks so much, Max. Um, so both of you, very independent thinkers, uh, many commonalities, especially sort of the anti-authoritarian bent. Um, Michelle, I would love you to explicate a bit more, right? Because many listeners of this podcast are also a bit more on the libertarian side, right? So I want you to um, guide us a bit through the kind of arguments, right? So I think one place where many listeners agree with you is that governments are extractive. But when you say that markets are extractive, many of my listeners um, are probably a bit like, hmm, what's happening here? Because the kind of perception is more, and I tend to agree with that, is that markets are positive some that are productive, right? So do you want to take us a bit on uh, into your thinking how you would react to these kinds of arguments and how you'd like to kind of change or the perspective of it? Right. Um, well, so so you know so basically, if you look at it a bit historically, so you know before five thousand before five thousand years ago. You know, humans were hunter-gathering. They lived in clans and tribes. There were very light variations, you know, in terms of class and caste. It was, um, you know, not not very huge in terms of differences. Um, and gifting and commoning were the primary modes of exchange. Um, so commoning means you know, to put something in a pool. So the hunter or the gatherer, you know, that when they come back with something, they don't sell it. It's for their family. And then there's rules like the older persons get it first or the women get it first or the women with children get it first. Um, 
So there are rules that define how the commons is distributed. And in gifting, you know, it's like I give you something and that paradoxically creates a a need for you to give me back because I've actually created inequality through my gifting. So traditional societies had these big festivals like the potlash where people would compete in giving, you know, to neutralize its sort of uh, gifts. Uh, but 5,000 years ago, we actually go in a, in a, you know, in a class-based society where some people are tied to the land. Uh, and then you have a managerial elite. Um, and I think it's very important to see that how markets and states are connected to each other. You can't have markets without a state because you need protection to have a market. If you don't have protection, people will take what, what you have. So, so the market and the state, like they co-evolved over time. Uh, and in the sense they're extractive is because they are the service of a particular community, nation, empire. And so, you know, it's Darwinian. So you're in competition with others. And, and so in, in order to win, you need more resources than the other side. And so this is just very empiric. If you look at history, you know, societies die, empires die, and it's cyclic. And it always happens through the exaggerated use of resources. Now, there's another way in which markets are extractive, in which, uh, you know, you're competing around your own interests. Um, and so individually, there is no incentive to, uh, to take care of the whole, right? But then the state only takes care of a certain whole. And I think this is a very good description of the problem we are in today. So where the commons comes in, and I have a theory about this, which I call the pulsation of the commons, is that in the ascending cycles of societies and empires, you know, where market and state can take good care of the core population that they serve, the commons will tend to weaken because you don't need them. You know, the, you know, you get, you get bread from the Roman state, uh, you know, bread and circuses that was provided for free. Uh, but in a descending cycle, when markets and states are not providing as well and are, you know, providing less and less, that creates an incentive to recreate the commons. And this is a, you know, very observable in, in the history, right? So here we reach today a, a stage where I, this is my story, of course, where I believe that whatever you want to call this system that started to exist in the 16th century, it has avoided those collapses through serial exhaustions. And in the core, and we were so strong in the core countries that we didn't feel it. That, you know, when something was exhausted in Poland, we go to Hungary. When something is exhausted in Zaire, we go to Nigeria, right? And so because of that kind of hiding away of these limits, we reach a stage where we have a global overshoot. And so my argument is then that in the descending cycle of the current system, whatever you want to call it, you know, which is like a market state collusion, I, I would agree with, with Max on that completely, then there is a real necessity to re you know, restore the commons as a protective mechanism, which is no longer just local as it used to be, but needs to be cosmic as well. So I talk about cosmolocalism as this kind of necessity whereby I believe we go to, we have to go through a relocalization of production 
So this is where distributed manufacturing come in. We now have a technology that would allow us to, to have very productive local production. We don't need centralization necessarily. We, there's a lot of things we can do. You know, think about arrival, not a movie, but the company where, you know, you they reduce 750 process to make a car to 50. They have a platform and they can make vans and truckers on demand. No need for mass marketing, no need for overconsumption, use bio, biodegradable materials and circular economy. And you can just start making vans and trucks locally based on local need. Um, but the knowledge, we have a real incentive to mutualize the knowledge. Because if you have a network, any innovation anywhere in the network becomes available for the whole network. So whatever it is that you're doing, you know, like permaculture or anything, even but also advanced tec technical project, there is uh, incentive uh, to to commonify the, the knowledge, and it can be totally open or it can be relatively open. With, this is something that needs to be discussed. I'm actually for copy fair rather than copy left or copy right, which is you know basically protecting networks. So you have like semi-open networks to avoid, you know, big companies sucking everything out and, and then out competing you based on the common knowledge. Uh, so I think we are in, in the spirit of transition uh, because, you know, if you look at the nation state, it has no legal ob obligation to care for the whole. It hasn't. So, and this is maybe to anticipate already uh, an, an important argument I, I think the crypto movement is paradoxically creating the necessary infrastructures to do that. And I would go even farther and provoke you a little bit, Max. <laughs> I, you know, I think that proprietarian libertarians are carrying out the program of Karl Marx. Because, okay, forget about Russia. That was Lenin and Stalin. But think about what Marx said. He said, after capitalism... We have socialism. What is socialism? It's based on reciprocity and fairness. Okay? But to the degree that society becomes more independent and more able to organize itself, so he called it functional equivalence, the state will wither away. And I think this is what is happening. So we now have the crypto communities using open source, being community-oriented, funding public goods, which are really commons goods, but they call them public goods because of Samuel Wilson, but they're public goods. And they're creating increasingly functional equivalents. Um, you know, for example, funding a public good. That is a functional equivalent. There's no taxation. It's done by the network itself. And so here is my historical scheme on the short term, 19th century market-dominated, market-centric. And it worked into a certain degree. The workers' wages went up by five. We created modern infrastructures throughout the world, but it ended because of its contradictions with World War One and World War Two. And the response of humanity was to say, we need the state. We need to regulate this market, right? And so after 45, we built the welfare state and the bureaucratic state, and we created this massive bureaucratic apparatus. And that is not working anymore either, right? So I think now is the time of networks. Um, 
and but I don't think the state and the market will disappear. I think it's the question is to find a new equilibrium. But I believe the commons need to be central to the degree that we need to protect, you know, ecological balances and and scarcifying resources, because if we, we don't do it, we go to war. So and I think rather to go to war, it would be better to find common agreements about how we are going to use the resources so that we don't have to fight each other to obtain them. So kind of that's like the broad story um, that so Exodus can be seen in a good and a bad way. Uh, in the good way of Exodus is people are seeing that the old system doesn't work or it's not working for them or they're, they're kicked out, right? And so in this cauldron, seed forms evolve and then eventually subsystems evolve and then eventually you have like a coherent new stable system. Um, so that's like a positive thing in terms of exos. You have another kind of exos, which I think is, is also very real. And this is the following. Okay, the, the earth is collapsing. Let's make sure we, can ha we have money and we can move around. Right, and I think a big part of the crypto community has that motivation. Um, okay, we're gonna have Bitcoin, so okay, you know, we don't have to worry about uh, hyperinflation, and you know, I can be an, a crypto nomad. I can go there and there and there and there. Uh, and I think that's short-sighted. I think first of all, if the crisis advances, we're gonna have real issues about energy, food provisioning, and so if you're really, you know, realistic, you need to take into account. And then the second thing is the people, you know. So if you have an explosion of, of, of impoverishment, you know, historically, it doesn't go well. Like people will target those that are seen to be parasitic to them. Um, so... So I think in general, it's much healthier uh, to think in terms of like, okay, how how can we embed ourselves, you know, with local communities, not not apart from them, uh, and make you know positive agreements and and find mutual benefits. Um, so I think that's an important thing. And so I think some of the thinking around network states is is motivated by the first. And of course, I would prefer the second. I can give you an interesting example. You know, people I met in uh, in Istanbul. So, you, you know, this famous article by Douglas Rushkoff. He was invited to speak for a dozen billionaires, and then they closed the door and said, uh, "Douglas, uh, you know, we all have our we we bought our islands. We we have our bunkers, but how can we trust the people who are going to defend us?" Right, because they need people with guns uh, to keep the rubble out, and the the answer is you can't, because you know you're just one billionaire, and these fifteen people that you hire can say, oh well, well maybe we should be the boss. So then I met you know the Moynihan brothers, who are kind of like maybe they're not billionaires, but they they did well, and they're 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 creating eco villages in New Zealand, right. So they have real communities around them that they helped. Um, and so this is a bit of the thing that, I, that I'm that i thinking of. And so in terms of the network state and network nations, 
I'd rather see network nations like the one I work for, so the Global Chinese Commons, who, you know, create real communities, have a desire to connect with the local population, see how they can help them, that invest massively in public goods. You know, I, I just think it's not just altruistic, you know, it's also, I think, actually even selfishly more more an interesting strategy. So that's kind of like a critique that I could have. On, but otherwise, you know, I, I think, of course, Balaji is brilliant, and I think these things are going to happen. Um, you know, I listened to a few of these network state presentations, and I said, wow, they're much further in this than I thought. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure a number of these things are going to happen. But yeah. I, I think if it's too much of like, you know, let's, let's secede uh, and have our little paradise amongst our own, then I, I don't think in, in the end it will not be successful. Yeah, I 100% you know, you, you agree always, with that, Michelle. You need a society yeah. that is friendly to the majority of the people. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, or, I 100% agree with that. And, and Max and Tails know they've been here three, four weeks ago in, in, in Roatan in Honduras. And that's what we're building. It's like a local community. It's very strongly embedded with locals um, and mutually benefiting from each other. That's why I think it's personally the most important project in the field. You're more than welcome to with us, by the way. Um, so I think that's really the model for the future where these community where we build communities that have this very strong local grounding and create yeah, a lot um, of positive externalities. I, I can't hear you anymore, Nicholas. Um, maybe yeah, I cannot hear Nicholas either. Okay. Maybe you'll permit uh, me to 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 have a uh, a closing thought on that. Sure. You, of course, I was just with you um, in Prosper, Prospera in in Roatan um, a month ago, and I fell in love with the place, the people, and the conceptual framework around it. I think it's a beautiful balance of pragmatism and um, and idealism. And it's just at its, at, at its genesis. So it is simultaneously a Genesis story and an Exodus story, if we want to get biblical, because it is a place to which people can e exit. And in otherwise, what I see in, is an increasingly hostile authoritarian world, one that is run, and I'm very happy to admit this, by corpor corporations in collusion with states. I don't want to see a world, by the way, that is run entirely by uh, sort of corporations that look like govern governments, and 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 that is something that I, um, I think probably Michelle and I share a, a, a sort of a, a suspicion of the work of, um, what's his name, Gray Mirror. He, Curtis you know Yarvin. talking about Nicholas, Curtis Yarvin. Curtis yes. Yarvin. Yeah, I'm I'm very suspicious of that that kind of thinking. And I think he should probably just follow Nick Land to China and go 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 be happy there. But I'm not. Um, and so I, I think that is a bizarre sort of, um, sort of retrogressive in in the in the Ken Wilber sense. You know, go, going back to uh, it's it's a dead end that sort of goes back to blue and has flecks of orange in it. And I'm not I'm not too. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I agree. And, um, you know, and... so, I, you know, where we agree is that, uh, you know, what we are living in now is a very negative phase. Yeah. Um, you know, 
like you've seen it on Facebook, it's it's censored massively. You you can have free thinking, and as an intellectual, and I'm you know I'm very old fashioned nineteenth century uh, almost uh, intellectual type. Like I I think free thinking is the basis of everything. You know, if you can't think, you can't do. You know, and and so and and right now, uh, you know, you you can't think. On the social media, you can't think. And so, I, you know, I'm for the creation of uh, what is called invisible colleges, you know, smaller groups of people who can have very qualitative, I, you know, conversations like we are having here. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, no, and, you know, we can disagree, but we, we will still respect each other and, and we learn from each other. But, and, and we are living in a world where this is disappearing, where, you know, the Western what is so typical of the Western tradition, I think, is 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 exactly the thing that is uh, endangered. Um, and so, you know, I fully understand the impulse to, you know, to create places where you can live protected from this. And you know, I, I haven't visited you, and and I I have to say I I, I have some of my old anti-libertarian, uh, uh, you know. Mm, <laughs> Kind of, but um, it's uh, in any way experimentation is always good. You know, it's that's that's the thing. It's yeah, you. I'd really love you made you to an visit agreement. It. I think you'll have a great country. time, and it will be yeah. um, a great well, learning I, I experience would, for you yeah. and for us as well. So, um, in January and February, we're gonna do another Zuzalut's high pop-up city. By the way, but I'd love to invite you, Michelle and Max as well, of course. Um, and we also have one sub-conference where I'd love to give you a talk, Crypto Cities and Network States again. So maybe that could be a good opportunity to definitely be in touch about this. And um, also to listeners who are listening to this and want to continue some of these debates with us, please join us in Vitalia. Um, we're very booked out in terms of applications, but um, for listeners of this podcast, I can, of course, make an exemption because if you've been listening so far to this, I know you're very engaged. So, so I can uh, I can prefer you for that. Um, great. Michelle, Max, do you want to say any um, final words of insights or learnings that you gained from this conversation that you're taking away or that you'd like listeners to take away? Mm. No, not really. I, I just want to make a, a bit of advertising. So I have the wiki, wiki.p2pfoundation.net. We have 25,000 articles on how peer-to-peer -peer is influencing, changing every domain, including spirituality, business, politics. Um, and I have a substack called Ford Civilization Substack, where I just wrote an article, which I'm really happy about, uh, somewhat provocatively titled will the will the global chinese common save the earth and i talk about neo venetian networks and so the idea is that this is a new kind of economic network that is built around community and i i think very much that crypto is doing that so it's it's not just business it's not just making money it's about creating community and trust and it's a bit of a paradox because they always talk about trustless but it, it actually, you know, there's a lot of work done on the human side. And I think that's that's how it should be. And so what you are doing, guys, I think that's very positive, is you're creating forms of markets and business that are not corporations, right? Because Curtis Jorvin, that's what he wants. He says every corporation is dictatorship, and that's why they work. And so he wants the whole country to be a dictatorship, 
you know, it's a bit paradoxical. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's what you guys are doing. And so in that sense, we are, you know, we share a lot of common ground and we're also different and that's, you know, that's how it should be. So that's thanks, good. Max. I learned a lot from you. Thanks, Nick, Niklas, and thanks, Tails. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to exchange my views with, with yours. It was fantastic yeah. to have you on. Max? Yeah, I um, I, I just, I would, first, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, um, I really want to see um, Michelle develop an MVP or prototype um, again. I know that you have been involved in these cooperatives and these, um, these local communities in the past. They are startups of a sort and they can work especially if you get the sub Dunbar dynamics right and the internet working layer right. I think that they can work. I want, I would love to see more of them. Uh, maybe you could call it digital kibbutzim. My, uh, my Jewish fiance would appreciate that, but that I want to see more of these kind of uh, local experiments where you can um, overcome problems of shirking and the monitoring costs of shirking that happen after you get to super Dunbar numbers and um, networking, internet working technology can, can help with that so that these, these communes or these, these cooperative arrangements or these Cosmo local arrangements, which are more hybridized versions can thrive. I want to see that. I think that they are an important solution to certain kinds of local problems, whether and to what extent they're a solution to global problems, I cannot say. Um, however, I, I, I not only have learned from you over the years about the, the potential for these experiments, but really want to see them realized. And you, you're a thought leader in that space. Uh, finally, I, I will make my own, my own little ad, my own little capitalist ad. I would love for people to read underthrow.org, which is my publication I publish every weekday. Um, sometimes I'll publish... Uh, great thinkers like Niklas Ansinger, your host, and others, but usually it's my own stuff. And hopefully in the process of growing outward, I can publish many, many, many more voices. And I, will, I really want to give strong consideration to publishing some of Michelle's work, if he'll, if he'll allow me to. So, of course, thank you very much. Fantastic. Michelle, Max, it was epic to have you on. Both of you major thinkers that have influenced me a lot and I expect will do more so in the future. Like highly recommended both of your blogs, Underthrow and Fourth Generation Civilization. For anyone who's interested in this movement and density centralization and different approaches to it, you have to read Michelle's work and Max's work. So thanks so much for both of you to come on and have this really fruitful learning debate among people that are friendly and curious about each other's thought, even though they differ sometimes a bit in their ideas. I personally love these kinds of conversations. So thank you so much for giving us the gift of your time and attention and your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five stars in your favorite podcast app and consider subscribing to our Substack. I appreciate your support that makes this show possible. See you in the next one.